Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest is a guy named Trevor McKendrick, who is a self-described atheist who happened to build the number one selling Spanish language Bible application in the App Store. McKendrick built a very successful company. What I want you to listen for is how he investigated the potential acquirer that had made an offer to buy his business. He looked at something called a 10Q and a 10K filing, which are required by public companies to make. And they list the acquisitions they've made and the rationale for those acquisitions. And understanding the history that his ultimate acquirer had for buying businesses really gave Trevor a ammunition and a degree of confidence to going into the negotiations with Salem. He ultimately got them up to a point where they were willing to buy his business for five times revenue, an astronomical multiple. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Trevor McKendrick. Trevor, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Good to be here. So what is an atheist doing building a Spanish language biolab? Yeah, it's kind of a, it's a funny story looking back. Um, well, at the time when I first, so I first started this uh, Bible app back in 2012. At the time, I was uh, kind of still going to church. I hadn't transitioned out completely yet. So I wasn't a complete atheist at the time. But uh, when I when I started making this app, uh, there was just an opportunity in the market that I thought I saw. That if you look in the app store for the iPhone, there was tons of uh, really kind of poorly made Spanish Bible apps, Spanish language Bible apps. And so I thought uh, there was an opportunity there. And so this is back in 2012. So you basically translated the Bible into Spanish, and and it was an application people could download on, on their iPhone. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, technically, I didn't translate it. We, I mean, there's uh, the text is in the public domain, so we use that to start. But yes, the original app was a very uh, bare bones, um, open it up uh, and read the Bible in Spanish. So, you know, you could highlight verses and share things with your, you know, maybe your friends or your family, but that was about it. Got it. And how did, how did the application evolve uh, up until 2015? I mean, were, were there added features that you added to over time? Yeah, oh, of course. Yeah. So this was, I mean, one of many experiments I was running at the time. And so I built it um, on the cheap for literally like $500. And uh, once it was successful um, and it was generating, you know, a, a decent revenue, I scrapped the whole thing. We built it from scratch. I hired a good developer, designer, and the whole thing. And then so at that point, um, you know, it had. Uh, you know, more features. You could, you know, you could save verses. You could take notes in the app. Uh, we added an, uh, an uh, I found a studio in Peru that recorded the whole Bible as an audiobook, And so we sold that in the app. Um, I uh, went and talked to a ton of different Christian publishers um, and licensed a lot of their back libraries. And uh, we sold those eBooks as in-app purchases in the app. So we added quite a few things over the years. Wow. And so what was the business model? Was there a fee to download it, I'm assuming? Yeah. So uh, initially it was it was uh, the very first version. Yeah, it was 99 cents to download. Um, but then as the App Store 
um, transition from, you know, pay to download to mostly free with in-app purchases. Um, that was when I, uh, I, I made the app free. And then that was when I started talking to publishers and that's when I started making the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the audio book of the Bible. And so then you could download the app for free. And then we had this library of content that people could purchase from in the app. So I've never done that. So help me understand for those listeners who've never done sure. that, if they're on an iOS device or, or an iPhone or an Android, um, so I down, so I click on the application. I'm starting to read the, the Spanish language Bible, and then and then a, a message comes up saying, "Hey, do you want to download the? You want to buy the audio book? Is that is that?" Kind of, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so you you know, you download the app for free. You open it up. You can, you know, you read the you read the Bible, and then on on the side we have um, a bunch. Uh, you know, you, you tap a button in the top left, and it takes you like to this sidebar we have. And in the sidebar we have, you know, that's where we store the person's notes. That's where they can get to, you know, our about page or help or support. And like one of those tabs in there was our, you know, our libreria we called it, which you know, like a digital library, right? And so they tap on that tab, and it takes them to a new screen in the app still, but it takes them to the screen that has a bunch of books and an audio book and things like that that they can buy. That they can buy. And when they purchase those, are they buying them on iTunes or are they buying on your you know, commerce, e-commerce platform? Yeah, good question. So we we built the, the whole thing. It was all proprietary. So they bought it on our platform, um, all within our app. We handled the, you know, the revenue. I mean, so Apple processes the revenue and we get, you know, and they, and they pay us, but we, you know, we built the whole, you know, there was it was it was our back end, I guess, is the best way of saying it. Got it, got it. And so, what did you get the business up to in terms of revenue uh, by 2015? Yeah, so in terms of revenue, you know, it wasn't all that big. by By the time we sold, I think we we're doing you know 110k in revenue. Um, so it was it was it was fairly small. I mean, it was you know me and a couple of contractors who were you know mostly part time throughout the year as I needed them. Um, yeah, I love that's, it. That's, I love it. And so of the $110,000 in revenue, what proportion was coming from uh, selling the audio book versus other things? What, what, were, what was the revenue or was it exclusively the audio book? Yeah. So most, I mean, so that's, uh, that's right. So I'd say, uh, you know, I'd have to look at the numbers again, but I think it was, you know, 70 to 80 K that was from the audio book. Um, cause I don't know if you've sold audiobooks or people in our audience are, are familiar with selling audiobooks, but, but they command a premium, um, and people, you know, people love their audiobooks. I mean, Audible is, you know, a cash cow because it's, you know, it's like selling software. Digital content is, uh, the margins are of course amazing and, and people are willing to pay for them. Got it. So you, you've got this business going. It's, it's just you and a couple of friends, uh, a couple of contractors, 2012, three years of your life. Tell us the next part of the story. You got approached, I think. Is that right? That's correct. So I was on, uh, I mean, I can go into a little bit of the backstory, but I was on this podcast, another podcast uh, called Startup, uh, made by uh, one of the guys from This American Life. And uh, he, you know, he, he's the one who made the original story about, you know, an atheist Bible salesman, which everyone thinks is uh, hilarious. And uh, from that podcast, uh, I got, you know, we get, uh, I got written up on Business Insider and from there I got picked up all over the internet and Fox News and Huffington Post and a bunch of other places. And from all of this publicity, um, a public company that's fairly well known in the in kind of the Christian industry um, called Salem Media found out about me. 
and uh, they're uh, they have a, a you know a director of uh, basically of uh, a director of acquisitions whose sole job is to identify. Well, he does a couple of other things, but one of his jobs is to identify um, uh, acquisition potential acquisition properties. And so he he reached out to me. And what did he say? He said, "Hey, uh, I'm from Sela Media. We're interested in buying your app. Um, can we talk sometime?" And was that and- part of your strategy when you wrote this? Uh- uh, I mean, what, were you thinking sell like selling the company, or what was the was it a surprise? Well, I mean, so if you go back to when you know I was, it, it it all started because of this podcast, right? And this podcast, I mean, it's still super popular. At the time, it was like remarkably popular, and they, you know, they 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 put out a tweet. They were like, "Hey, we want to hear from our listeners. If you know, our listeners are probably entrepreneurs. We want to hear your story." And so I sent them this email, and I was, you know. It's it's one of those classic entrepreneurial things where it, uh, there's just you're looking for optionality kind of wherever you can find it, and and so I wrote this email like, hey, maybe it turns into something. Maybe it's just one, you know, of <laughs> the hundreds of emails that I'm sending, and you know, and from there it turned out into you know, it, you know, it, uh, eight months later it was an acquisition, but I didn't really know that at the time. So what was your initial reaction when you got this letter from Salem? Yeah, so. Interestingly enough, I had already heard of these guys um, back in you know 2012 when the app really started to to do better, to do well. I had kind of deep dived in, into the Christian industry, and I had I had heard about these guys. They're kind of like the big player. They're a public company. You know, they're worth you know approximately you know 150 million dollar uh, market cap. Um, and they they make these kind of types of acquisitions all the time. Their history as is as a radio company, and as that's declined, uh, they're trying to and they're doing a pretty good job of it. Was to 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 thrive by acquiring digital assets and growing those. And so I dug into you know I have a background in accounting, so I dug into all their SEC filings, their 10Ks and their 10Qs, and I read about all these acquisitions. This is back in two, 2012, and so I'd seen they'd acquired companies for you know for you know they'll acquire a company for a hundred thousand dollars to five million. I think their biggest acquisition was maybe 10 million or so. So they're doing relatively small acquisitions, but they did them all the time and they wrote about them in these filings. So when I get this email, I instantly recognize the company and I instantly recognize that this is like a real, this is a real potential. They're making, not making an offer in the email, of course, but this is a potential offer for real. And so I took it very seriously from the beginning. Uh, which I think contrasts with, I, I mean, your audience and obviously your guests would know better than me, but uh, where, you know, you'll get, you know, people like kicking the tires, you know, corporate dev who, you know, who it's their job to talk to potential acquisitions. And so, you know, they have to be doing something versus, you know, when I heard from this guy, I was like, oh, this is, this is a game on. Fascinating. And so how did you react? What did you Send them well, in return. Well, I waited 24 hours because I, I was I knew the negotiations had already begun. I didn't want to, you know, uh, I didn't want to appear overly eager or desperate, and, and and maybe that's a bad strategy. I don't know. Uh, but I waited 24 hours and I replied. I was like, you know, super casual about it. Like, yeah, sure, would you know, be happy to talk talk to him. Interesting. And so, where did it go from there? So, I mean. I mean, it's a, you know, long story. It took, the whole thing took seven months uh, from the first email to the, you know, to the wire transfer. And, you know, first step was, you know, sign the NDA so we can talk to you. Okay. Sign the NDA. And then he, you know, he asked for specific metrics, you know, so I send him over the metrics. What kind of metrics did he Uh, ask for? 
Uh, you know, typical, you know, revenue, um, number of users, um, you know, things like that. I think I, in, in, uh, we can reference, you know, my blog post that I wrote about this. I think I included some of the things he asked for if people want to dig into the details. Yeah, and the show notes will include Trevor's okay. blog post, which is brilliant, by the way, and uh, really details a lot of the – and includes some – a due diligence checklist that they provided, Trevor, yep. as well as the initial questions that uh, folks so, – so we'll include a link to that and certainly – encourage you to read that but let's continue keep going yeah yeah so so uh so it's i think it's a couple of weeks of uh of, of back and forth they're just trying to you know learn about the business and and gather information um before before they made their first offer and so they make their he makes their first offer um you know now that i'm telling this story i'm like wondering whether i did things right or wrong i was like oh i should listen to, to listen to your podcast but um <laughs> i feel like i'm exposing myself here Maybe everyone's like no what are you doing but anyway so i uh they, they make their first offer over the phone uh and i you know i'm like okay that's great i'll get back to you the first uh, offer was three and a half times revenue as i recall it post. was yeah it was 3.5x and this is all the multiples are on revenue. Uh, and so I was like, okay, you know, that's interesting. I mean, Trevor, the, the, people listening to that right now are going three times, three and a half times revenue is astronomical. I mean, we're, we're used to hearing, you know, three and a half, four times profit. You're talking yeah. times revenue. I mean, were you surprised at such a high valuation out of the gate? Well, no, be, no, for a couple of reasons. One was because I had the primary like the Spanish language Bible app in the app store. Like if you search La Biblia, it like I'm number one. And then number two is like the, literally like the hundred, 100 million download behemoth in the English space. Right. Um, that and this app at the time, you know, took me maybe a couple hours of work a week uh, at the most. It was extremely passive. Um, I had a large user base and they had deep pockets. Right. So I had, I had no, I had no reason to sell. I didn't need to sell, um, and they could afford to pay a premium. And if they wanted to, you know, to play in the Spanish space, uh, the, you know, they were, you know, they were going to kind of have to go through me. And so their first offer, yeah, it was three and a half, uh, uh, three and a half uh, x revenue. But it was like I, I knew they could do more. So I think I countered with a six x, and uh, you know, we back and forth. They raised theirs to like four and a half, and eventually we settled on five x revenue. How many times did it go back and forth, Trevor, with, between you know their initial three and a half and and, and settling at five? Yeah, so it was, I'll tell you, it was three and a half X. Then I countered with six X. They came back with four and a half X. Then I said five X, and he then and then they they basically they agreed. And was that was the five X uh, inclusive of any sort of earnout or you know hold back at all, or was it cash up front at the moment? You know, they they it was it was I mean it was yeah it was it was cash up front. There there's a tiny 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 piece of it that um you know they wanted me to be like available to like for consulting hours and so you know there's you know they're they're able to, you know they they want to use me but the, the the terms of the deal where you know do 100 hours of work for a be up to 100 hours of work for us over the first year of the acquisition which most which a is a lot of hours and b is a long period of time um which so normally i wouldn't agree to something like that but i knew that it was i knew that uh, we were going to talk together for like 10 hours in the first couple of weeks and then it was going to tail off from from that so anyway so to answer your original question uh tiny piece of it was part of this we want to be able to talk to you but the rest was cash on signing but you agreed to the 100 hours i did yeah and and in practice how many of those did they actually use 
Well, they're still so they can still use them up till so the deal closed September third of last year, and they get them for a year, um, and so they've used. I don't know, 15, 20 hours at this point. That's probably overestimated, to be honest. Um, and I, you know, I haven't heard from them for a month, month and a half. Like I, you know, there was something that changed uh, the, the provider of one of our backend services was changing a bunch of stuff. And I found out about it. And so I told them about it, right? Like they're not even contacting me at this point um, because the, basically everything's been transitioned over. So I knew, I knew it wasn't going to be a hundred hours and it wasn't a big deal to to give that to them. So they start at three and a half. You go back at six. They come up to four and a half. A lot of entrepreneurs at that point would have been would have said, you know, job well done. Um, I boosted it by a turn. I got four and a half times. It's an astronomical, you know, multiple to begin with. Uh, but you pushed back again and and asked for five. Um, what was that like? What, that took serious courage. <laughs> I guess. I mean, you know. You know, John, it's uh, it's funny because looking back, honestly, I wish I had. I wish my first counter offer to them had been had been higher, um, because because you can always, I, I think at least you can always, you know, you want it to be you want it to be just high enough that they take you seriously. They don't, you know, they don't go running away forever, right? And so. I just wish I had countered even higher because I think they would have come up, you know, that much more. And, we, you know, our, you know, meeting in the middle would have been maybe at 6x, right? Or maybe even higher than that. I mean, who knows? It's all, you know, it's easy to um, to kind of second guess yourself with hindsight. Uh, but again, I just, I was coming from a position of strength. And not only that, but I had, you know, the unique uh, and this is unfortunately is difficult to replicate, but the unique opportunity to negotiate with a public company who had written about all their acquisitions, right? And so I had reached out to a couple of the founders of these companies that had been sold to Salem Media and had asked them about the process and had asked their multiples and, and, and things like that. Um, and were just they to- forthcoming? They were, I mean, you know, they, you know, they could tell me, you know, only so much according to the terms of their, of their deals. Uh, but, but, but they were, I mean, it was half, half of the reason I con I reached out was for due diligence just on Salem in general, but then also was, you know, you know, how were the negotiations? What kind of multiple was it? And, and, and things like that. Did you capture Salem's, uh, permission to reach out to those people or did you do that sort of behind the scenes? That was just behind the scenes. Tell us about SEC filings. Again, not everybody has the same degree of background in accounting that you do. So sure. explain for a layperson what you know where they would get an SEC filing for a public company. What are they looking for specifically uh, to understand what acquisition habits they have? So that uh, that's a great question. So there's two types of filings that you can. Well, there's there's two basic ones you can look for, and that is one's called the 10Q. So every quarter, every public company has to put out their financials, and it's called the 10Q. And then every year, the second one you can look for is called a 10K, and that's uh, the same thing, but it's just for the whole year instead of for one quarter. And so in these filings, in the 10Q and in the 10K, companies are required to talk. Uh, and disclose acquisitions that they've made that could potentially be material to the company. So, for a company with a market cap of say 150 million dollars, who's one of who's you know one of their main strategies right now is acquiring new companies, they're going to be required to talk about these acquisitions. For a company, say like. You know, let's just take a big company like, uh, you know, Apple worth, I don't know, half a trillion dollars at this point. They're also making a lot of acquisitions, uh, but they're not going to be required to uh, 
to go into details. I mean, they've, in fact, they might not even mention uh, some of the acquisitions that they make. So it depends on the business. But but all you got to do is you you know open up the form there for free. You can go to um, edgar.sec.gov. You know, put in the ticker symbol of the company you want to do research on. Find the 10Q or the 10K. Open it up, and then just you know command F. Uh, acquisition and then everything in there is going to be in that section. So it's it sounds much more complicated than it is, but it's it's easy to find if it's if it's in the filing. And you did the work. So you talked to a, a group of these entrepreneurs that had sold. Uh, what did you learn about Salem as an acquirer? Um, I learned that they were fine to work with. Um, I learned that you know uh, they, you know they they paid um, they could afford to pay healthy multiples. Um, that's about it. I, to be honest, I, I mean, these weren't like deep discussions with these guys. I mean, um, but it was just nice to, you know, it was nice to reach out and know that like talk to someone who'd gone through it before and, and had, you know, could say, you know, yeah, I'm glad I did it. It worked out for me. Great. So you agree on 5X uh, and you sign a letter of intent and that triggers or starts the due diligence process. Maybe talk a little bit about due diligence. Yeah. So, so due diligence, uh, I mean, I guess it's never a great thing to go through. Due diligence was particularly hard for me because at the time, uh, my uh, at the time my wife and I were on this two month trip in Europe, um, like like right in the middle of this whole thing it was it was kind of bad timing, and so and so anyway, I, I accepted verbally. You know, the, we agreed on a price. I was like in a restaurant in Germany at the time, which felt cool, but was kind of kind of. Uh, you know, unplanned anyway. So, so they give me their due diligence list and I, you know, I go back to the, you know, the hotel the next night or the next day and I start, you know, compiling everything that I can. Um, Again, I for wish, folks who haven't gone through diligence and haven't read the speaker notes or the show notes, just give us a sense of the couple of things they would ask for in a due diligence process. Just yeah. So, I mean, um, so, you know, ver- verification of every number that I've given them plus more. So revenue, downloads, uh, things like that. Um, all analytics. Um, they want to see, you know, they, for something like uh, like software and and digital assets, they want to see that I own the rights. This is a really big one. Own the rights to the things I'm selling them. So they want to see, you know, the agreements that I've signed with the contractors who have built uh, the app, right, and who have recorded the audiobooks. That basically saying that um, those all of those rights have been assigned to me and my company. Um, those were, you know, I think those surprise people a lot of time and those can kill deals. Um, they wanted to know, I mean, other stuff, it was easy because I'm small and it was just me. But, you know, they, they also asked for proof that, you know, I had the authority to approve the deal. Like if there was a board of directors, things like that. Um, it's it's looking, you know, when you get it and looking back, it all makes sense. But it's, it's stuff that you would never think of, it that, uh, you know, up front before you go through it. Fantastic. And, and take a look. On the show notes, the the checklist itself, I think there's about 15 or 20 items there. And if you're going to go through the sale process yourself, there's a concept called pre-diligence, which um, is kind of uh, the opposite of due diligence. It's essentially what you would do as an entrepreneur prior to even putting your business on the market. And basically, in pre-diligence, and and accounting firms offer this as a service, so you can hire one if you want, but pre-diligence basically means you get all this stuff in a box ready so that when you get the offer, um, you don't have to scramble for three months trying to pull all this stuff together. You just basically hand the box to the potential acquirer and say, here you go. And you know, if the pre-diligence is done well, nine out of 10 of the things they're going to ask for have already been thought through. Um, so that's called pre-diligence. But So you're going through the diligence process. You've got, 
recall there was a there were a few sticking points in the deal itself, Trevor. Maybe talk about the two major deal points that were uh, that were that had the potential to derail the sale. So you'll have to remind me of the second one. The first one that I can remember is the uh, the the NDA actually the. Um, Basically, you know, they're because they do deals. You know, they're this big company. They do deals with small companies, tiny companies, all the time. And so they're used to kind of stomping around and getting what they want. And just this is the you know this is the deal. Kind of take it or leave it. And so I push back on that because I basically they wanted me to not talk about the sale at all, right? Which is stupid because the sale is going to be disclosed in their file in their sec filings anyway um and so i pushed back hard on that one i was like hey i want to be able to talk to people about this i want to be able to write about it on my blog i want to be able to talk about it in podcasts um because again i mean this the acquisition price wasn't it was a healthy chunk of money but it wasn't going to make me like independently wealthy like i don't have fu money yet and so i had you know i needed a path going forward and so part of that path has been you know building my 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 personal brand and part of that was going to be that i'd sold this company so i'd be able to talk about it and so um, I pushed back on that hard and, you know, they gave me the classic line, uh, you, know, the, you know, the guy that I dealt with was like, you know, I've been through, you know, I think he said 15 deals at this point and this is, we've gotten this term on every single one of these deals and, you know, read any blog out there about negotiations, right? About, you know, whether it's raising venture capital or selling a company and, you know, you'll see that that's like a, a common line and uh, I believed him, but it was irrelevant as far as I was concerned in my negotiations. And so I just, I just told him up, up front and, we, you know, this is, I don't know, five and a half months into the negotiations and the whole thing ended up lasting seven. I told them, I was like, hey, this is, you know, I just told them basically I, I wasn't going to be able to do the deal if this was, if that was going to be in in the definitive agreement. Were you bluffing? And, no, no, not at all because, because the, that was value that was far more important to me in the deal than it was to them. Like it was important to like some lawyer, right? And, you know, in where, you know, in their headquarters that was like, oh, we want to just, make sure that, you know, that no, that no one ever hears about this. And to me, it was like, no, this is, this is really valuable to me. Like this is, this is a big deal. People are interested, interested in these stories. Uh, and no, and so no, I, I wasn't, I wasn't bluffing. And so I told him this, I was like, Hey, you know, maybe, you know, this isn't going to work. And then literally John, there was 45 seconds of silence on the phone. And I was just, I'm just going to wait for him to talk. Like I, I am not bluffing. I'm going to wait for him to respond and to to talk about this. And so literally we sat there um, for 45 seconds, five seconds in silence until he came back on the phone. And he was, you know, I was like, oh, OK, well, let me let me talk to him and see what I can do type thing. And sure enough, I don't know. Next time we talk, whatever it was a week later, he was like, OK, we, you know, we, we can you can you can talk about it, basically. So for listeners, one of the most powerful negotiation tactics you have in any discussion with a potential acquirer is, as Trevor just demonstrated, silence. And a lot of the time, it will feel deafening to hear that silence on the other end of the phone. One little secret I use uh, is to count. Obviously not count out loud, but count in your head because it makes your mind fill your mind with something other than how long is it going to take the other guy to talk. So you can literally start counting one, two, three in your mind. Because it's a fun little game, and you're like, well, like this guy's already gone to 30 seconds. I wonder if he'll make it to 45. <laughs> He's gone to 45. Will he actually make it to 60 before he talks? It can give your mind something to to fill the dead air with, so that you're not uh, tempted to just fill the dead air. Because filling the dead air, obviously, you're starting to negotiate with yourself. So kudos to you. What did you do to keep the 45 seconds holding your tongue for 45 seconds? <laughs> well, well. I mean, I, so, you know, the first, the first 10 seconds is like the worst. Cause you're like, Oh my God. Like 
this is this is awkward. You know, you want to end the silence yourself, which of course me like because you know it feels weird, and and the natural thing is to is to fix the weirdness, but in this case, fixing the weirdness is to negotiate against yourself, like you just said. And so 10 seconds in, it was weird. 20 seconds in, I was like, oh man, I can't believe this is happening. But by like second, you know, 30 seconds in, I was like laughing and smiling to myself. Like, man, this is awesome. I can't believe I'm doing this. I was like, I was like, I was like proud of myself in the moment, if that makes sense. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and 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 it worked, and I, uh, it, it was kind of, it, frankly, it was it was that it was one of those moments where I was like, man, I should have asked for a higher price up front and just been more ballsy about it. But uh, but yeah, yeah, but you know, hindsight is is twenty twenty. The second potential derailer of the deal was indemnification. Oh, that's right. Thank you, thank you. Uh, First of so, all, explain what that means for people who don't uh, never got yeah. through that. So indemnification uh, basically means uh, if uh, in, in kind of in a narrow sense that if, you know, I sell I sell these apps and these properties to Salem Media, if for some reason in the future they get sued by some third party for for something related to my apps, uh, indemnification says that I would be required to basically defend them so like legal costs if you know if they got sued and lost the lawsuit um you know i would be you know liable for some of the damages sometimes all of the damages that's that's what basic indemnification is and they were looking for as i recall a full forever indemnification with no maximum liability <laughs> yeah which to me is just crazy um especially for the size of this deal to be honest uh and so that one, I was just, I was like, I'm like, come on, like that. That's just like, uh, I think it's absurd. Um, and so, yeah, so they wanted uncapped liability, infinite liability, uh, with infinite time, which in like practical terms for the, for your listeners means that like if they got in some crazy lawsuit for this app, it was I don't know a hundred million dollars, and it happened like twenty years from now, I would be liable for a hundred million dollars. Um, and that's just that's just crazy. Like unlimited downside for the rest of your life just doesn't make sense to me. So, what we agreed to, and this honestly wasn't the best terms, but uh, I, I I didn't feel like I was going to get the, exactly what I wanted. Uh, and so the the best term, the terms that we ended up getting was that we capped it at the size of the deal, um, but it still goes for it's still unlimited life. Um, so. Which I'm okay with because, again, these properties, um, you know, especially apps, their half-life is pretty short. Um, and I, I actually – I don't – I'd be interested to hear, like I said, uh, from you or your other listeners about what other more typical terms for this are. But I was okay with capping it at the size of the deal and just kind of living with it. Yeah, I mean, these deals, reps and warranties are another thing that, that come up a lot. So reps, representations yes. and warranties, things that you are representing to be true as part of the negotiation, yep. they want your uh, proof and, and you want they want you to stand behind that. You are, in fact, being truthful in negotiation. And so these, they sound like such minutia and such detail. Let's get back to the, the, the negotiation fun stuff. But I hate to say that it is really... Uh, some of the, the the sticking points that do derail deals come down to this kind of legal minutia mess, and I think it's 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 important to have uh, a great lawyer, in particular a good deal lawyer. And a deal lawyer is not the same person who incorporated your company. Typically, a deal lawyer is someone who does deals is a, is is used to going through the process yep. of selling a company and realizes life isn't binary. It's not either or. As you identified. 
you went to the wall on uh, on confidentiality, but you gave a little on indemnification. And I think that's pretty pretty normal that in an, in an exit process, there's going to be a give and take. And and what you don't want is the the, the lawyer who incorporated your business, who thinks their job is just protecting you at all costs, which means that everything is going to be no. And you're never going to get a deal done unless you have a lawyer who who is kind of looking for that common ground, who knows what deals you are completely willing to uh, basically walk away from the deal for versus those things that are, you know, there's some negotiation in there. And uh, in your yeah. case, did you have a lawyer that you felt comfortable with? Yeah, I uh, wanted to recommend him actually. If anyone's looking, he's uh, so I live in Texas now. I've never met him in person. Uh, he's based out of their, uh, the Dorsey Salt Lake City office. His name's Sam Gardiner, G A R D I N E R, and uh, he's a he's a partner there. He's an M and A lawyer. Like this is he's a you know this is, he's a deal lawyer. This is what he does, and uh, and he he was awesome. I, one of my uh, you know other you know, looking back things I wish I'd done earlier was hired him uh, earlier actually in the process. Um, just because, you know, we, we, you you know you don't know what you don't know, and once he was kind of at the table, um, it was interesting to you know I was I, I read the whole definitive definitive agreement before I hired him, um, and then once I hired him, he went back through it and he said, oh, here's the thing, you know, I, I'm trying to think of an example, unfortunately, but basically, he obviously knew what specific things meant much better than I did, like you know how arrogant of me to think that I was going to be able to understand that, you know, all the nukes and crannies of, uh, of this agreement. But anyways, uh, it was, it was absolutely totally worth it. If you're doing a deal of any, any decent size, you should absolutely get an M and a lawyer. Fantastic. And thanks for the recommendation to Sam. That's great. So the deal goes through the wire comes through. I mean, what was that like? I mean, I, I can see by your picture in Skype and some of the media, I mean, you're a young guy. That's a big check for a guy your age. Yeah, I'm, uh, re- yeah, relatively young. Um, you know, it was it was it was a relief more than anything. I'll be honest. So the deal closed on September third. I th- I want to say that was a Wednesday. I'm not sure, but but Monday. I mean, so, so just taking a step back, what I hate about M and A uh, from the entrepreneur's perspective is that it, it that. In a sense, it is binary, right? Either the deal closes and you get the wire transfer, or it, or it doesn't, right? And so, and so, you know, even a couple days before the deal went through, I was just so I was like nervous and just like sick to my stomach. I wanted it to go through it so much, but at the same time, you know, it's 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 funny in business. It's it's a lot like dating sometimes, where you know I hadn't heard back from them in a couple of days. We were in the final steps. Like, what's taking so long? But if you reach out to the other party and express any sort of doubt or concern or any lack of confidence, it can hurt the relationship, right? And it can, you know, it can, it, you know, in the worst case, it might torpedo the deal. And so, you know, I, I, you know, I was in bed for a full day, you know, the week of the deal that the week of the deal went through because I was just, I was just nauseous, um, and I don't know if depressed is the right word, but what, it was just, it was just bad. And so when the deal did finally go through. I mean, there's a a picture that I took of myself having lunch by myself at In and Out, kind of celebrating. Uh, but that was a smile of like relief, because <laughs> because uh, yeah, I was I was I was just super nervous about the whole thing. Trevor, how did it go from in the early days 
when you first received that email from Salem, you're like, I mean, like, I'm not for sale. I've got this great passive income. I work a day, you know, a month or whatever it was. It's, I mean, why would I ever sell this little cash cow to literally being nauseous in bed Yeah, for fear that the deal wouldn't go through? Like, how does it go from that in seven months? That is an excellent question. And the way, so it changes because, there, you know, there's a, a phrase that I like. I don't remember where I heard it, but like basically in M and A, like when the when the hors d'oeuvres are being passed, it's that's the time to eat. And so I knew that these guys were the perfect acquirer. I knew that they were going to pay more than any other acquiring company. Most likely, you know, ninety percent sure of that. And so I knew that you know this. This was the opportunity. Like, if you're running like a max function, like th- this was the most I was ever going to get for for this property. And so, going from yeah, you know, it's you know we're making decent money, we don't have to work a ton, to like oh, this is potent, you know, this is it was I don't know, the, I think the profit multiple was like the was like eight x, and so it was I was going to be able to capture a lot of value here, and I and you know. Of course, that was interesting to me, but also, you know, you get like emotionally invested and you start projecting out into the future like, oh, how might this, you know, you know, change my life in in, in some, you know, in some small way. Right. And so you get I know know everyone says not to do this, but you just get so emotionally invested and in in projecting, you know, in projecting out how this might kind of change things for you. And I I am 100 percent guilty uh, of doing that. And so that's what happened. I just the terms were good. I knew it was a great deal and I really wanted to go through and I had no reason to doubt that they weren't going to like something. Right. It's not like I had I wasn't hiding anything. They knew everything about the company. They know they got, you know, revenue and app downloads updates like the day before the sale went through type thing. Like there was nothing that no reason other than it had taken a long time that I had reason to doubt. Uh, But but you just get so invested it wanted to go through so bad that uh, until it does, you know, just assume you should assume that it doesn't, that it won't go through. So, Trevor, how has life changed since the sale? Yeah. So my friends were making fun of me when it went through asking me, you know, how is how is retirement, which is just totally not false because I'm definitely not retired. I don't know why I get defensive. But anyways, um, so now I'm blogging and talking about this story and and uh, I'm talking about, you know, how was it growing this app from, you know, we built for $500 to sell into this big company, the things that I've learned as an entrepreneur. And, you know, I'm talking about that at, uh, at my personal site at trevormckendrick.com if people want to want to check that out. And uh, one of the other things that I'm doing that people can also see there is, um, so my background, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is also in accounting. Um, I have a master's degree in accounting. I worked for a big four audit firm in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, I, it's a, a part of the world that I, that I know a bit about. And so I'm putting together, I'm creating a course for entrepreneurs and freelancers that covers uh, the accounting essentials. It's, it's an accounting course and it's not going to be, you know, it's not your typical accounting course where it goes into the details of debits and credits and, and you know, the nuances of accounting. I'm not trying to create accountants here. The goal is, and what the course does, is it teaches the things that entrepreneurs should know about accounting when they're getting into it. So, you know, because in, in, in talking to people and creating this course, I've heard, I can't tell you how many horror stories about, oh, what things, things that I wish I had known when I started my business. 
that, you know, people have accountants, but because they don't know the right questions to ask, uh, they, you know, they still end up paying, whether it's fines or penalties or interest, they pay more than they should. And so I'm creating this course so that people can, entrepreneurs can be informed. And so even if they do have an accountant, I think that most entrepreneurs should, that they know the right questions to ask and they know, you know, how to save the most on their taxes and how to do their books correctly for their business. That's at trevormckendrick.com. That is correct. Yep. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. It was great being on the show. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.